0: Good morning. My name is Dr. Tommy Allen from New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington. This is May 10th and it is Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day if you're watching. Happy Mother's Day if you have a mother. Don't forget to call your mother today. Um, I'm going to begin our time today by reading to you Psalm 131. It's only three verses. And so I say to you, hear the word of God. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. You see, God is our Father. We've been talking about that in the Sermon on the Mount, um, and that's true on a sort of ontological, you know, uh, what He is at His very core, but He also manifests to us motherly uh, uh, characteristics, and so I would just remind you of that. And you've been called together. Typically, after we do a call to worship, we do a confession of sin, and so I'm going to lead us this morning in a confession of sin. Um, If you want to pause afterward and take time to confess your sins silently I'd encourage you to do that some of you might need a lot more time than others (laughs) so if you want to follow along our confession of sin today is as follows holy father all things in heaven earth around within and without condemn us the Sun which sees our misdeeds the darkness which hides them the accuser who justly charges us. Your righteous law, our sin soiled consciences, all write dark things against us. Yet we still live and fly repenting into your outstretched arms. You will not cast us off, for Jesus brings us near. You will not condemn us, for he died in our stead. You will not mark our mountains of sin, for he leveled all. O oh God, we bid farewell to our sin by clinging to his cross and hiding in his wounds and sheltering in his side amen let me pray for us father i pray as we enter into this time of considering your word that you would um you would bless us with insight that you would bless us with uh, sanctification that you would draw those uh, open the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind i pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking in jesus name we pray all of these things amen and amen Well, if you've been following along at all, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Mount is really teaching that Jesus gave his followers, right? He gathered his followers together, his disciples and said, basically, here's what it looks like to live your life as, as a Christian or a follower of mine. Now, for sure, there were people on the outskirts who weren't followers of Jesus yet, and they were, they were getting the information as well. And so if you remember up to this point, um, Jesus has, has He he ended chapter 5 by saying, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he begins chapter 6 basically by saying, be careful. In other words, he he pivots from saying, be perfect to be careful. In in other words, at the end of chapter 5, he said, basically, you should be living out your righteousness. And in chapter 6, he warns against living out our righteousness to be seen by others. Now let me ask you this question before we begin and we jump into the Lord's Prayer because we've been looking at three different areas or two so far, right? He said when you give, don't give in order to be seen by others, but give in order to, to, to be rewarded by your Father who is in secret. And he said when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who pray in order to be seen by others. And don't be like the Gentiles who just yammer and babble on in order thinking that they're, they're going to be heard for their many words. Rather, you are a child of your father and you can go to him in secret and he will hear you so now let me ask you this question because it's going to become important to what we're, we're looking at next because we're looking at the Lord's Prayer today and the Lord's Prayer may be the most well-known part of the whole Bible Old Testament or New Testament uh, even if you've never been to church or you've probably heard it sung in weddings and things like that and so I want to ask you a question that you typically don't think of in the context of the Lord's Prayer the question is this What is your greatest longing right now? Maybe if you're a note taker, you write that down because some people just can't think off the top of their heads. Oh, I know my greatest longing is. Maybe you haven't thought about it, but is your greatest longing maybe to be finished with all the coronavirus stuff? Maybe you long to go outside without a mask on. Maybe you long to go to the park and not have to worry about being, whether you're six feet away from other people. Um, Maybe there's something deeper than that. Maybe you long for reconciliation with a family member. Maybe you 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 have broken relationships and you just long to to have them be made right. Maybe you're a parent who hasn't talked to a, to a grown child for years or decades, and you really long for that to be uh, made right. And or maybe maybe you've lost a loved one. All of us have lost loved ones, and do you long to be reunited with that loved one? In other words, if we're really honest, our hearts are full of longing. I mean, they're just they're they're just overflowing with it. If we would, but. Acknowledge it. And that, at some level, is what the Lord's Prayer calls us to do, to acknowledge our longing. We're basically going to look at two things Um, this morning. I know I typically give you three. It's Mother's Day, so I'm cutting you a break. Um, (laughs) We're looking at two things today. The first thing is the longing for shalom. And the second part of the Lord's Prayer is really about our need for grace. So, the first part, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer first part is about the longing for shalom or our longing for shalom and the second part is about our need for grace. Let me read to you the um, Lord's Prayer. So Jesus says in verse 9, he says, uh, Pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And so before we even enter into those two points, the longing for shalom or our need for grace, um, it's important to remember that... Jesus is following up what he has just taught about prayer, right? Don't pray like the hypocrites to be seen. Don't pray like the, the Gentiles uh, with many words, thinking that God will hear you because of your your many words. And then the next thing he says in verse 9, he says, pray like this then. And in Luke's version, he says, pray like this. But Luke's version actually can be translated, when you pray, recite this. In other words, Jesus, I think, expected us to memorize this prayer. And that's not out of character because most Jewish prayers were memorized prayers. Remember last week I talked about the fact that they stopped three times a day and that they had these eighteen benedictions that they would have memorized, and so Jesus really expects us to memorize the Lord's prayer. That 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 when we pray, maybe every morning when we pray, we begin with the Lord's prayer. Guess where I have the Lord's prayer in my life? <laughs> prayer Mate, of course. I talk about that all the time. One of the first things that pops up in Prayer Mate for me. Is the Lord's Prayer because it's going to remind you of your longing for Shalom and your need for grace and so I would encourage you if you have not memorized the Lord's Prayer um, to commit that to memory you you want it in your heart not just on your phone or your computer so the longing for Shalom he says pray then like this our Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so why, why am I saying this is about longing for Shalom? First of all, what is Shalom? If you remember at the beginning of the Bible, if, you've, if you haven't read it, right? At the beginning of the Bible, God creates everything. It's perfect. He creates Adam and Eve. And then as it were, he puts his feet up on a chair and says, uh, not only is this good, but it's very good. And, and in the Hebrew worldview, that state of affairs where everything was the way it was supposed to be is Shalom. So in other words, right after God created everything, he pronounced it good. And that situation right there was shalom. This is the way things are supposed to be. There's a right relationship between man and God. There's a right relationship between man and man. And there's a right relationship between humanity and creation. And then Adam and Eve went and blew the whole thing. Right? God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as our representatives, nonetheless. And in doing so, they violated shalom. And it sent this shockwave through all of Shalom. And God immediately stepped in and said, I will fix this. I will restore this. In fact, one of your seed, one of your children will restore this. That's in Genesis 3, 15. And so the rest of the Bible is about God's mission to restore Shalom, to restore things to the way they are supposed to be. And if you're honest, um, ask yourself this, are things the way they are supposed to be? No, right? I mean, look around you. Like we're, if you're like me, I live in Washington, and you know, I've been in quarantine since March. That's not the way things are supposed to be. Um, are the fact that viruses kill people the way they're supposed to be? Not really. We all know that in our hearts. Is your life the way it's supposed to be? Are your relationships the way it's supposed to be? If you doubt things are the way they're supposed to be, turn on any news service. Right? Fox, MSNBC, CNBC, uh, CNN, anything. And what you'll hear over and over, their business is to remind you over and over, things are not the way they are supposed to be. The gospel comes along, Jesus comes as a second Adam, and where the first Adam disobeyed, the second Adam obeys, and he begins to restore shalom. Now, in this prayer, notice what Jesus says. Here's how you should pray. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'm just going to walk through some things here. The first word in there that is important is our. He doesn't say, when you pray, go to your closet and pray like this, my father. In other words, you, if you are a Christian, you are de facto in community with not only the Christians in your neighborhood, but Christians throughout the world. And so you are part of this great, vast community who also longs for shalom. And he says, our father, right? Remember, we talked about the fact that we're not alienated. God is not some distant uh, deistic thing that we just hope that he hears us for our many words. We actually have a father. We live in community. He has lots of children. And he, he says, our father in heaven. And the key to understanding, I think this whole part of the prayer is the word hallowed, right? He says, hallowed be your name. Now, why would Jesus say, Hallow be your name, right? Hallow means to make holy, or to show yourself holy, or to glorify yourself. Why would why would Jesus tell his followers to pray that, right? Is it just because God desires glory or something? I think there's there's something much more infinitely practical here going on, because if you think about in the Old Testament. Um, Whenever the saints in the Old Testament, like Moses or Abraham, whenever they got into to, to jams, whenever things got really difficult, the way that they got out of them, or at least the way they prayed, was that God would glorify His own name, or that God would show Himself holy to the nations. In other words, they challenged Him. They said, "If you do this, that you're not going to be holy in the eyes of the nations." So let, let me give you a great example: is Exodus chapter thirty-two. I know every week I'm like, oh, this is one of my favorite passages. But this one is as well. So if you remember Exodus 32, um, Moses has gone up Mount Sinai to to receive the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is going up the mountain to receive the commandments, all of Israel is down the mountain breaking the commandments. (laughs) I mean, like all the commandments. And while he is up there, of course, God knows what's going on down there. So God says this to Moses. God knows that they're making a golden calf. He knows that they're having these sort of raucous parties. And God says to Moses, verse 7 of chapter 32. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now think about how bad you have to be for God to just say, I'm out, I'm done. These people are are so rotten. They're so despicable. They're so wicked. They're so unthankful. Moses, here's what I'm going to do. Just give me a minute to like collect my thoughts. And I'm just going to smite them all. I'm going to wipe them out. And I'm going to start over with you. Now, if you were Moses, what would you do? In some ways, given how Israel treated Moses, you might say, amen, brother. He doesn't do that. Moses prays for Israel, but he uses an interesting technique. He appeals to God's glory and his holiness and his, willing, his ability to keep his promises. Notice what Moses says, verse 11 But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In all this land that I promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. In other words, Moses says, God, if you do this, Egypt is going to think you're not a God who can keep his promises. If you do this, Egypt is going to think you're actually a weak God who doesn't love his children. And how is God going to respond to that? Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. I think the King James says the Lord repented. And in other words, God changed his mind. Moses appealed. God changed his mind. When is the last time you ever appealed to God by his own holiness? That, that something that was not the way it was supposed to be should be made the way it's supposed to be. I think he's actually more interested than, that, than we think. You know, when our girls were, were young, we had an appeal system. And I always, <laughs> I always loved it when they used it. In other words, they might come and say, dad, can I go to my friend's house tonight and spend the night? And I'd say, no. Come on, dad, no. And they would go on and on and you know it would eventually end up in one of us crying. Not me, usually. Um, and then 10 minutes later, a little girl would show up and said, may I make an appeal? Well, since that was the system, yes, you may make an appeal. And when they came back and made the appeal, most of the time, I think I relented. Or Judy relented. In other words, it's not like that we were testing them. A lot of times we just thought, had time to think about it. But the fact that they were willing to come back and appeal made all the difference in the world. When's the last time you ever did that? Right? Things are not the way they are supposed to be. And yet we cry out. And sometimes, apparently, God is willing to change his mind. Now that's not always the case. Because notice how Jesus prayed. If you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed um, to God that that God would take this cup from him, and it said he 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 was sorrowful unto death. It says in Mark, and the way that the book of Hebrews in chapter five verse seven describes it is this: It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from his death, and he was heard because of his reverence. In other words, Jesus appealed to God as well. Jesus appealed to God and basically said, um, he, he, he said, may this cup pass from me. And it says in Hebrews, it says that Jesus cried out with loud cries and loud petitions. And it says that he was heard. But the answer was still no. Jesus didn't change god's mind but what i want you to notice about moses and about jesus is their praying was particularly unpresbyterian and what do i mean by that is that if you're if you've been around presbyterians long enough which i've been a presbyterian church ever since i've become a christian and the way we tend to pray is we tend to say lord if it's your will Heal me from my cancer or Lord, if it is your will, you know, please help my hip surgery or Lord, if it is your will, please, you know, get the coronavirus. I, I don't expect you to do anything. I'm just throwing this out there. That's not the way Jesus prayed. The way Jesus prayed was he said, will you please change your mind? Like, I don't want to necessarily go to the cross. I don't want to bear all the suffering of the world. I don't want to bear all this stuff. And then at the end, he said, not my will, but your will. In other words, I'm going to accept whatever you say. Not 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 sort of just prefacing everything by saying, eh, you know, if it, it, it's up to you. God wants us to engage him. If you long for shalom, tell God that. And the other thing is that, um, you know, oftentimes if you, if you, I think one of our problems with prayer is if you gather, and it's like this in every church. If you gather a bunch of people together and say, okay, who's got prayer requests? What are they almost always about? They're almost always about our health, right? Oh, I got a bad knee. Would you pray for that? And, you know, oh, my mom's having trouble with this. And those are valid, great things to pray for. But most of our praying, I'm convinced, is the the reason our prayers are ineffective is they're due to a a lack of imagination, in other words, what if we actually used our imaginations and started to pray for the restoration of Shalom? What if we used our imaginations and started to pray for the restoration of Shalom in Kent? What would it look like? Let me read to you Revelation 21. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Revelation 21 starts like this, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold... (laughs) The dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And chapter 22 begins, And then the angel showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In other words, what if, we, what if we began to pray and what if we began to gather for the restoration of Shalom in our part of the world? Whether it's Kent or whether it's Charlotte or whether it's Tallahassee or whether it's, you know, the Keys. Wherever we're, ha- we're sitting when we're watching this. What would it look like? What if we had the imagination to think, you know what? Things really suck right now. Forgive me for that in kent or anywhere in the united states or in the world what if we began to pray that they would actually be different what if we began to pray this well what would happen is if they were answered we'd see less racism we'd see people from every tribe tongue and nation we'd see more love joy peace patience and kindness we'd see church new churches being started not because old ones are dying but because the old ones are full and we just need new churches marriages would be healed the list could be endless do we pray for that you see, I think the, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, that you, you would actually just acknowledge the longing for shalom. That the, God would hallow his name and that, not, that he would manifest his will on earth as it is in heaven. That's a fancy way of saying, God, make things the way they are supposed to be. So not only do we long for shalom, that's the first part of the prayer. The second part of the prayer teaches us to pray about our need for grace notice the second part of the prayer he says uh, at verse 11 give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil so the first thing that we pray for is is in the first thing we recognize is our need for common grace now What is common grace remember common grace is that grace of god that all human beings experience but it's also the grace of god that we tend to take for granted the most it's the grace that gives us sun it's the grace that gives us the seasons it's the grace that provides us food it's the grace that enables us um, to to just live and breathe right and so we recognize that we are dependent upon god every single day for his common grace and this passage probably it is a shout out to Exodus chapter 16, where Israel was told, remember, they got out into the wilderness and they, things were tough and they didn't have enough food and they didn't have enough water. And so what do they do? They immediately started to grouse and complain and tell Moses, oh, why did you bring us out of Egypt? You should have just left us there. You brought us out in the wilderness to kill us, blah, 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 right? God comes and he says, I'm going to feed them manna. And the manna will rain down every morning. They're to go out and take only as much as they need and no more. Anything they take over what they need will turn foul and moldy and nasty. And so they, that happened and they did that. And what do you know? Some people took more than they needed. Some people took, um, you're supposed to take double on Sunday. Some people tried to save up so they would have extra. And it became foul and nasty and, and moldy because they they didn't trust God to give them exactly what they needed even though he promised he would now it's easy easy for us to to sort of make fun of Israel like look at them and go ah ha ha what a bunch of noobs they didn't get it right blah blah blah." you know we do the exact same thing don't we I mean instead of trusting God for for what we need how how many of us sort of kill ourselves for what we want that our whole lives really it's like we're not really saying okay God what do I need to accomplish your mission but what do I want A lot of times we sort of, we can Christianize that too, you know, that we're basically um, doing all these things in order to be freed up from ministry. And in other words, how many times have you thought, you know, if I had more money or if I had a better job or had a better stock portfolio, if I had this or if I had that, then I'd be free to do actually what God wants me to do. Well, here's the kicker. Whether you have a good stock portfolio or not, or, or a lot of money or not, there's still a lot of things that God wants you to do. In, in other words, when we stop relying on God for common grace and start thinking that it's all up to us at the, and that, that we somehow can control the world around us more than, than we actually can, we end up like the invisible man. And and the invisible man I'm talking about is the invisible man by H.G. Wells. If you remember that book, it's a great book, that basically the invisible man, this guy, he finds the the, the recipe to become invisible and he thinks, yay, my my Life is going to be cake now because now that I'm invisible, I can do what I want. I can go where I want. If I want something, I can take it. No one can see me. Everything will be awesome. Well, the invisible man was miserable. Why? Because he didn't think about the fact that in order to be invisible, you got to rack around naked. And in England, it's wet and cold all the time. Misery. You can't wear shoes if you're invisible. His feet were messed up all the time. And added on to that, people got knocked into him and bumped him over. They did all these things. And the moral of the story in the invisible man, by the way, he goes insane. And the, the moral of the story is, is basically this. Is there's no magic pill and there's no formula for escaping the brokenness of the world. Whether you like it or not, you need God's common grace. And you don't just need God's common grace, but you also need God's saving grace, right? And that's where Jesus goes next, right? He says in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, is he talking about money there? No. In the Jewish worldview, debts was a word that they would use and it was equated with sin and jesus is saying you ought to be praying to god god forgive us our our debts our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors now why did they use the word debts for sins and i think the answer is pretty simple is that forgiveness almost by definition is paying someone else's bill That's what it means to forgive somebody. There's been some transgression and someone's going to pay for it, either the person who did it or the person who received it, but it's just not going away. And so when Jesus says, first, forgive us our debts, of course, that's reminding ourselves of the gospel, that in the gospel, God has forgiven our debts. He has forgiven our sins. And that is because he sent his only begotten son to pay the bill. Someone has to pay the bill. For our sins. We have sinned against the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God and we have broken covenant with God. Someone's going to pay that bill. It's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. I'm going to suggest you let Jesus pay that bill and you receive the forgiveness of God. It just seems simple to me. Then again, I'm a preacher, right? On the other hand, to the extent that we have understood that we've been forgiven by God, we will be forgivers ourselves. In other words, to the extent that you have been forgiven, you will be able to forgive. And then only to the extent that you have been forgiven. So people who have been pretty big sinners and know it tend to be pretty big forgivers, right? Luke chapter 7, the, the woman in Simon the Pharisee's house comes to mind. There's a lots of different uh, descriptions of that in the Bible. But the, this idea of forgiveness is so central to our lives and so central even to the lord's prayer jesus gives that little excursus at the end in verse 14 he says for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses now is that jesus talking about works there absolutely not that would be inconsistent with the rest of the bible is he emphasizing something to make sure you and i get it That if you are not a forgiving person, you really should check and consider whether or not you yourself have experienced the forgiveness of God. And if you haven't experienced the forgiveness of God, do you really understand that you need it? Do you understand your own brokenness, your own wickedness, your own propensity to do the wrong thing, your own propensity to do things, maybe good things, but only for others to see? Do you understand what an idolater you are? All of these kinds of things. Do you understand how much you have been forgiven? right? Because whoever has been forgiven much will love much. That's where we're going with this. And why is forgiveness so important? I was thinking about that just this morning. Why, why is forgiveness so crucial and so central to Christianity? And which ultimately makes Christianity so important to to the world. And it's just this... If you think about it, there are some transgressions and some debts that can never be paid back, ever. I mean, even if if you say a harsh word to your spouse, you can't pay it back. You can't say, okay, honey, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say three nice words after that. That toothpaste is already out of the tube. And we see it on television all the time where someone is murdered. Right, if 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 I'm murdered or even accidentally murdered, one of your family members, I can't just say, "Hey, I'll pay that back." That's gone. The only remedy there is forgiveness, is and the only way that we can have it in us to pay the bills of others, especially big bills like that, is if we have been forgiven ourselves. So that leads to the last point here, is that we don't just need. common grace or saving grace, but we also need persevering grace, right? So that's how the prayer ends. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that would probably be better translated by something like, let us not be subject to severe testing or trials. In other words, that word temptation, it could be translated as temptation, but we know from the rest of the Bible that God doesn't tempt us. And so it would probably be better to say, uh, please let us not be, Lead us not into severe trials or severe tests, and, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. And really, that's just a prayer for God's persevering grace. And, and in many ways, it, it's a word much like Israel. If you remember, Israel had experienced God's saving grace. He delivered them from Egypt and said, I will deliver you into the promised land. And their failure was they didn't believe or have faith in God's persevering grace didn't pray for it. They didn't do anything. They just thought, well, God saved us, and now my life's miserable because I'm out in the wilderness and they complained about it. That's, I mean, honestly, that's what I do sometimes. Isn't that what you do? It's like you, when you catch yourself complaining, ask yourself, is it because I am not remembering, praying for, and having faith in God's persevering grace God promised Israel he would finish the job God promises you he will finish the job right he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus and so let me end with this what is Jesus saying in the in this the the Lord's Prayer Um, basically I think at the end of the day what Jesus is telling us to do is he's telling us to pray for the utopia that every human heart longs for stick with me on this one what do I mean by that? You know, I read an article years ago. It's in the Atlantic monthly uh, January, 2000s, a guy named Steven Weinberg. And the title of the article is five and a half utopias. And he describes five different utopias. The half utopia is what we are right now, which is no utopia at all. But he describes five different types of utopias, right? Utopia means, uh, it's a Greek word. It means good place. Like, what, what, was, what would the perfect world look like? What would Shalom look like? And he basically says, in the human race, there's five different approaches to that. I'll read them to you real quickly. Um, the first of the five utopias is the free market utopia, right, where there's no government barriers to so capitalism. The world becomes industrialized and prosperous, right? That's the, the capitalist utopia. If, ever, if we just had completely and utterly free markets, eventually everything would sort it out and the world would become a perfect place. Number two, the best and brightest utopia. The world is governed by intelligent, well educated, selfless leaders. Right? And you can see in these utopias, the first free market utopia is what you might hear about on Fox News, frankly. Um, the best and brightest utopia, that's, that's like going to be MSNBC or CNN, right? If we just, we just turn things over to the bright people and the smart people and the educated, selfless leaders, we're all going to be golden. You then have the religious utopia. Which I don't know what religious channels there are, but a religious revival sweeps the earth, reversing secularization of society that began the Enlightenment, or even something like Iran, or the U.S. will, quote, return back to its Christian roots, right? If we could just get back to our Christian roots, things would be the way they are supposed to be. Then the fourth one is the green utopia, right? The world turns away from industrialism and turns to a simpler lifestyle, blah, blah, blah right? That that we would stop, that that we would start taking care of the environment. If we just did that, the world would be a great, perfect place. And then the last one is technological utopia, which information processing, biotech, increase in productivity, all of that will make it such that eventually wealth is not an issue, right? So you see those five utopias and and all of them are familiar to you, whether you've thought through them or not. Now, here's the thing. Weinberg says is, I don't think he's a Christian. Two things that keep every one of these utopias from getting off the ground. The first thing is that each of them requires a leader or a government that is all-wise, all-knowing, completely just, and benevolent. Right. So, So what keeps the utopias from getting off the ground is having someone who is sovereign over all things, but is also completely benevolent. The second thing that keeps them from getting off the ground is they all depend on something being able to change human nature. In other words, they all acknowledge the problem is with the the environment is that we're poor stewards. And and because of our simple human nature and because of our greed, unless something can change us, we'll never realize the green utopia or the capitalist utopia, right? Any of those things. So on one hand, they need a, a, a king who is all wise, all powerful and all loving and all benevolent. On the other hand, they need something that can change human nature. Now. If you're a Christian, that should sound very familiar to you. Because in the gospel, that's exactly what we have. We have a great, benevolent, wise, all-knowing king who is completely loving and, in fact, calls himself Father. And we also have this thing called the gospel that is able to change any person. One of the things that that, that breaks my heart oftentimes is when I hear people say, um, Yeah, you can talk about forgiveness and you can talk about that Jesus, but if you knew what I did, if you knew how bad I was, you might change your mind. Or if if, if anyone really knew the sins that I had committed, here's the thing. There is no sin, no person, no one that is so far gone and so separated that Jesus cannot help and change. In, In other words, when we long for shalom and we acknowledge our need for grace, Everything changes. That's what the Lord's Prayer is encouraging us to do. Think about that. Let me pray for us, Father. I pray here and now that you would, um, for if, we're, if someone's watching and they have yet to embrace Christ, that you would have them even now um, say, "Jesus, forgive me my sins," and please, um, God, be my Father. I pray that you would just continue to open people's eyes. I pray as well for the the. Pandemic, we're in, that you would um, heal people and that you would enable us to, to get back together as normal and that you would enable some things to be better than they were before. So I pray for mothers out there that you would bless them and keep them, especially mothers right now with young children um, in, in a time of quarantine. Just give them grace, Father, and give them creativity and give them an extraordinary uh, love and patience with their children. In Christ's name, we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. So at this point in our services, if we're meeting together, we would sing the doxology and then we would take an offering. And so if you're you're interested in giving to New Hope, you can find the information in the comments section below or in the information section below. Um, if you're interested in giving for the first time, you can do that as well. So typically we would have then a profession of faith and then the Lord's Supper and then a benediction. And so we're not having the Lord's Supper, obviously, but we are going to do a profession of faith this morning. And it's interesting because in all of the, the, at least the Protestant professions of faith or confessions of faith, whether it's a Westminster confession of faith or Heidelberg Catechism or Canada, they all talk about prayer and they all acknowledge that the Lord's prayer is the way we should be praying. So this is from the Heidelberg Catechism. You can follow along if you want. So question one is this, or question 118, what did God command us to pray for? Answer, everything we need spiritually, physically, as embraced in the prayer Christ our Lord himself taught us. What is this prayer that he taught us? And the answer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That last line is not really in the Bible, but someone added it at some point because they thought it would sound cool and it does. And so that's why we pray it. And so thanks for joining us this morning. Let me send you from, from, from this, video cast by saying the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Amen and amen. Have a great week.